Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. We'll also be discussing our rhetoric lessons, so gear up. We'll be discussing the fallacy of the straw man. But before, of course, we get into that, we want to make sure that it is clear how you can get a hold of us and participate in sending us your Bible questions or clarifications on the topics we discuss. If you'd like to email us, our email address is questions, F-O-R-Hope, at gmail.com. That will be spelled out for you on any of our social media platforms, the first and most significant of which is our church website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you join us at C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com, you'll see a purple bar at the top of the screen with various little windows they'll send you to. Click on the one that says Watch Live, and you'll be sent to a webpage that says CC cftucson.online.church. There at the right-hand side of the screen, you can not only leave us your comments and questions as we are live, and you'll also see a countdown clock if we aren't live to when the broadcast will next be taking place. But we'll also have our email address spelled out for you in a banner at the bottom of the screen. Note that you can take advantage of that at any time for sending us your Bible questions, as well as Facebook, which is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page, which is titled A Reason for Hope. If you give us a subscription or a like there, you'll be notified of when we are going live. However, if there for some reason, won't specify, or I will, we are taken down for things that we say, feel free to still join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform. We're looking forward to engaging with you. Just note that the standard for our questions are sincere Bible questions. Sincere meaning you want to hear the answer. A Bible question meaning that the essence of the question leads us to the Bible, not beyond it. And of course, that it is asked in form of a question. For those of you who are familiar with Jeopardy, you get bonus points for that. So with all that being stated, and before we get into our rhetoric lesson, anything that we say regarding God's Word should involve God. So Peter, why don't we ask him to be a part of the broadcast? Yeah. Uh, Father, we love you. We thank you so much for all the wonderful and amazing work that you're doing in our lives. We do pray and ask that you would help us to devote our time and our attention to you right now, that your word would speak to us in a way that affects us and draws us closer to you. And in your name, amen. That is true. Now, Continuing with our rhetoric lessons, a quick recap for those of you who have been following us either on our playlist in the future or in the present as we are live streaming, the art of rhetoric is not dialogue involving two people, it's the ability to speak effectively. And in speaking effectively, we want to make sure that we have our ideas straight when it comes to not only presenting them, but also challenging others. And this is especially important when it comes to what we'll be discussing here and now. The straw man fallacy is something I'm sure a lot of people have brought up in comment sections, but 
haven't actually taken the time to know what it is, and we want to fix that. So when someone brings up a straw man fallacy, it doesn't mean, well, you just said something that I don't like, or it doesn't mean, well, you summarized my position and I don't like the way it sounds now that I hear it from another perspective. A straw man fallacy is, in fact, a very important, informal, but nonetheless critical misrepresentation of someone's ideas and then arguing based on that misrepresentation. So in order to understand this in action, we'll give a number of examples. Since we're a Bible question and answer program, we'll include that as well. But for those of you who've been active or engaged in the internet for any length of time, you may also be familiar with another example of this being done almost rapid fire in real time. And it's very easy to do this, not just because you're obnoxious or because you don't like the person you're talking to, both may be true, but to misrepresent someone and then argue based on their misrepresentation is what it means to straw man somebody. And before we get into our example, anything more you want to state on that before we go into biblical, post-biblical, and practical examples? Yeah, no, I, I like what you said about it, and uh, to also illustrate that sometimes it's done unintentionally. So sometimes it is an intentional debate tactic. Politicians do it all the time. So they intentionally take their opponent's argument, they make it a mockery of itself, and then they take it down. That's a very, very common tactic and it's one that's very effective because when people are listening to long-form debate unfortunately most people don't have long attention spans and so by the time the response comes people forget what the original statement was so when it's misrepresented they might think oh that is what they said and they will miss the fact that it's a complete uh, fail when it comes to refutation and it's also very effective because sometimes it could draw in your opponent. So the opponent, when they're responding, instead of pointing out the fallacy, they might start arguing from the faulty premise. So they misrepresent them, and then they give an argumentation against it. And instead of saying, hey, you misrepresented me, that was totally wrong, and then pointing out where the digression happened, they start arguing with the conclusions that the person was coming to, from the faulty premise, right? So uh, it is it is a very effective, but it's a very slimy tactic. It happens all the time as a marriage counselor, I'll tell you, this happens all the time in marital strife. So what will happen is you're in an argumentation with your partner, with your spouse, and you're so fired up, you're so um, scared or nervous or defensive about what's going on that you will genuinely misunderstand your partner and then you'll attack them. So for instance, a uh, husband will be asked by his wife to take out the trash or something like that. And later on, he won't do it. He'll forget. The wife says, you forgot to take out the trash. He says, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to do it. And she'll respond because this has happened like a, a hundred times at this point. So you're saying you don't care about things when I ask you to do them, right? Now that's, that's a straw man. That's a misrepresentation of what he said. What he said was, I forgot to do it, meaning it was negligence. I just it slipped my mind. How she's interpreting it, though, is you don't matter enough to me for me to care about your needs and your wants, right? So it's a, it's a malicious misunderstanding from the partner's perspective. And we'll go more into this when we discuss attributing motive, knowing right. the heart and intent when you don't. But <laughs> the point Absolutely. then being made is that. And it's also key to understand why this is a problem, because if you're dealing with something and what you deal with isn't the thing, right. then you haven't dealt with anything. Right. But if, on the other hand, we clarify, and this is how we get around these issues, if you think or you even suspect 
suspect that they've been misunderstood or you've been misunderstood, you ask questions. This is how you get around the straw man, mm -hmm. rather than make assertions. You say, now, did you say this? Or did you mean this? They can then correct you. Or they can clarify their point further, which will give better clarity to avoid the straw man. But if, on the other hand, they pursue that misrepresentation, then obviously the goal in the conversation is less than savory. And even in defense of the truth, we don't want to reduce ourselves right. to these kinds of tactics. Right. So regarding an example of this, uh, first of all, for those of you who are familiar with the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson, he had an interview some time ago with a talk show host. I won't uh, mention her name because she's embarrassed herself enough already. But the point being made is this, what you're going to hear and what we'll play over those listening on Reach Radio as well as on our live stream and our post video on this as well. The example of a straw man in action. Now notice the exchange, the dialogue that's taking place, how Dr. Peterson presents his case and then how Kathy Newman already has in mind what he means and essentially tries to hang him on what she thinks he means. Absolutely. So to set the stage, they are talking about the gender pay gap. And once again, me and Sean aren't going to get into this right now unless you guys have questions about it. Biblical. Uh, yeah, biblical questions about it, which I don't know how you could, but maybe you do. Uh, at any rate, they're talking about the gender pay gap. She's making the assertion that there is a statistical gap between the pay that men get and women get. He's about to give an answer. And his answer is to give an understanding of why that pay gap exists and then potentially what we could do about that. She is then going to give her understanding of what he's saying. So uh, listen to him. He speaks, uh, he's, a, he's one of the preeminent intellectuals of our day, so he speaks at a very high level, but me and Sean will try to summarize him best we can and then get to her straw man uh, retort. So let's do it. Worth, worth your salt. You never do a univariate analysis. Like you say, well, women in aggregate are paid less than men. Okay, well, then we break it down by age. We break it down by occupation. We break it down by interest. We break it down by personality. But you're saying basically it doesn't matter if women aren't getting to the top because that's what's skewing that gender pay gap, isn't it? You're saying, well, that's just a fact of no, fact. Saying women it aren't necessarily matter. going to get to the top. No, I'm not saying it doesn't matter either. You're saying, I'm it's saying a fact there are multiple life. reasons for it. Yeah, but those are. Okay, so I hope you guys got it. It goes on from there. And if you listen to the whole interview, basically the entire interview is straw man. Yeah. <laughs> basically the entire interview, he will give an answer like that and she will immediately straw man his answer. And then he'll have to basically defend it. So it's actually a worthwhile interview to listen to if you want to understand what the straw man fallacy is and the best way to address it, because he does a fantastic job in it. He this doesn't is... go any farther than where she's misrepresented him. He says, no, the buck stops here. We're not going past first grade until you pass this course 100%. What did I say? The argument was, or the conversation was about, the gender pay gap, and he was clarifying there are more factors involved than just the fact you are a woman, that people are being paid less. Then she goes on to say, so you don't care about women's plight. You don't care that there's a disparity. And he said, no, that's not what I mean at all. Right. And thus stopping the conversation, the interviewer had the chance to ask for clarification, but instead doubled down and said, no, you are sane. So you are sane. And this is what the straw man looks like. Yeah. Now, anything more to note on the example, or can we go into scripture? No, let's do the scripture. So what would be an example of a straw man being countered in the Bible? Yeah. So this is an example of it. This is Romans chapter three. Uh, the Apostle Paul is speaking 
he hasn't quite gotten to his main point of Romans 3, which is the concept of the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus being sufficient for our sins. So meaning the fact that Jesus died for our sins is sufficient for us. We don't actually need to fulfill the law before we can have a relationship with God. It is only based on the fact that Jesus died for us and we believe in it. That's what saves us. So that's the argument that he's making. Some Jews of his time had heard his argument and they had strawmanned him. So he's going to uh, give a little bit of their answer and then he's going to refute their straw man. So this is chapter three of Romans, verse seven. He says, for if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirmed that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? And then he goes into his actual argument. So you, you notice how he defers it. So first of all, he's saying, Jesus died for our sins. We put our faith in that, and that is what saves us. And Jews and Gentiles can both share in that salvation because it's by faith, not by ethnicity or the, our propensity to follow the law to perfection. The argumentation is, so you're saying that we might as well just keep doing evil and good will come out of it. Romans 6.1 says no. No. And so Paul argues right here just a little bit saying that is not what we said. And then he goes on and makes his actual comment. As you pointed out, in Romans 6, he gives an even further refutation of this point. So let's go to Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So same thing that they were saying about him. He just rewords it a little bit to let you know, hey, all of Romans 3 from where I stopped, all of Romans 3, all the way to the end of Romans 5 is Paul's actual argument. So then he brings it back to the straw man. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. So he refutes them by saying, that is not my argument at all. In fact, if I'm saying that we believe in Jesus for our salvation, much more than we should follow his example in righteousness. So in other words, if we believe that we're condemned by the law, and that's why we needed the sacrifice in the first place, that's why Jesus died, having accepted him as our Savior, why wouldn't we stride even more ardently to follow him in his example of righteousness? So that's Paul diffusing the straw man, and that's Paul giving his actual argumentation. But you can see the steps necessary. You have to stop, right? You have to stop. You have to address the straw man, explain why it's wrong, and then you can move into your actual point. Which is, in fact, the whole point of chapters 3 through 5. He's establishing the fact that this has always been the case through faith, that starting from Adam all the way till the time of Moses, that we're all under sin, but no law. So then noting and dealing with the issue of the law, what was its purpose? He clarifies, then going into the issue of righteousness. Was it by Abraham's works, or was it by his faith? And then he builds on this point back to their accusation. So notice, just like with Dr. Peterson, he's basically making this progressive argument, which is called the Romans Road, rightfully so. It's a very straight line. But the line of thinking 
as complex as it may be, is meant to accomplish just that, to deal with a straw man, which was what something Paul wasn't actually saying, but someone said that he said. So in order to respond to this, you either give them the chance to ask questions for clarification, or you take that time to clarify what you said. You don't go on to defend a position you didn't even have, because that is a trap. You don't have to defend something you don't believe, because you don't believe it, (laughs) unless it's some, you know, bizarre, you know, role-playing scenario. So the point being made is that when we're talking about a straw man, we're talking about a misrepresentation of somebody and then arguing based on that misrepresentation. It's not every misunderstanding and it's not every single time someone says something about you that you don't like. It's arguing from something you didn't actually say. And if it's, well, I meant this, that's different. That's right. just you trying to cover your tracks. And uh, one more example of this that I thought was really interesting. So there's a debate between Matt Dillahunty and a Christian pastor from, it sounds like he's got an Irish accent or maybe Australian accent, not really sure. It's on Unbelievable Podcast, and it's, it's kind of interesting. But Matt Dillahunty, by the way, he's basically an atheist version of us. He hosts the co-host, rather, the Atheist Experience. So we have kinship in that regard. <laughs> so when he was talking about the sacrifice of Jesus, he said, So you're saying that God sacrificed himself to God to save us from God so that we can have a relationship with God, right? So he's clearly representing, he's taking these statements of Christianity and he's molding them, debasing them into a place where they sound ridiculous. And there are less than flattering ways they've gone even further than that. But he was in a professional environment, so to his credit, he just laid it out with God as the limit to the names he would refer to Jesus as. That's right. And and by the way, I've heard Christians do a similar thing, right? So they'll they'll go to atheists and be like, so you're saying that... Uh, anything goes, right? If you don't believe in God's morality, that means that you can rape people and murder people, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? That's not the atheist argument. That's unfair, right? So Christians also can do the straw man fallacy as well. Yeah, you would ask them a question. So what basis then do you determine morality? Do you believe these things? And if they say no, then you can ask why. But if you accuse them and say, you're the next Benito Mussolini or whatever, they're obviously going to be cut off from future engagements because they see from that that you don't want to listen to them or care about them, let alone care what they think. So why should they return the favor? And this is also especially true, and we'll finish with this, when it comes to religions antithetical to Christianity. For example, Islam. Islam, or submission as you know, is based on the teachings, observations, and as they claim, revelations of their prophet Muhammad bin Abdullah. And in the late 6th century, he made this claim that the Quran wasn't, that means recitation in Syriac, by the way, that the revelations from Allah are in a fundamental conflict with essentially what Christianity had now claimed. Unfortunately for him, he He also claimed the Bible and the Torah are the uh, words of Allah, but we'll get to that more in a moment. In Surah 5, Surah means chapter, and in verse 116, there's a passage that's noted there and quoted often by Muslim debaters in refutation of the Trinity. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the doctrine of the Trinity, we'll clarify it in response, but notice For those of you who do know the doctrine of the Trinity, not illustrations, not LDS strawmans of the Trinity, and of course not Unitarians either, when we're talking about the Trinity 
listen to what the Quran says, and I'll be reading from it, and, of course, what we actually believe. Here's the refutation. It says, And when Allah said, O Isa, that's Jesus, son of Mary, did you say to the people, Take me and my mother as two gods other than Allah? He said, Praise be unto you. It is not for me that I say what is not true for me. If I had said it, so indeed you know it. You know what is in my soul, and I do not know what is in your soul. Surely you are the knower of the unseen. There's other passages that note that how could Jesus be God if he and his mother ate food, and other examples like this. Now, Peter, when it comes to the definition of the Trinity, from its formation as a word to its origins in Scripture, the doctrine being taught, have we ever made the claim that the Trinity is composed of three deities, those being the Father, Jesus, and Mary? Mary. (laughs) Yeah, no, 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 no one actually believes that. No, nobody believes that. That was probably because, uh, you know, we talk about Muhammad. He was illiterate, so he couldn't actually read the Bible. He was more inundated by the stories and the recitations of the Jews and the Christians in the surrounding area. Problem were is, exiled from the Roman Empire for being heretics. Right. A lot of them were heretical. So, <laughs> so he's kind of getting a lot of heretical doctrine on puree. So meaning he's not just getting it from one source. He's going to multiple different heretical sources. And so he's hearing all these different things. and He's trying to make sense of it as well as refute it simultaneously. Because he obviously didn't believe it, or he wouldn't be a self-proclaimed prophet, he'd be a disciple of Christ, which he wasn't. That's right. So he actually believed that what he, that refutation that we see in the Quran actually would be completely in concert with what's contained in Scripture. That was his belief. Too bad he didn't actually have a Bible to check up on that, but you know, he that's what he originally believed, because the only exposure to Christianity that he had was from these heretical sources. So when it comes to dealing with this Islamic straw man, what's the first and most important thing to do? Full stop, here's what the Trinity means. Not, well, actually in the Bible it talks about, you know, Jesus and Mary and the Father all doing the sort of things God could do. We don't believe that, we don't have to defend it. Right. But upon the other not hand, even Catholics believe that. No, <laughs> no, yeah, no. no we, we yeah. challenge them on some things, but right. here's the point that's being made. Do we believe in three gods? No. No. According to Deuteronomy <laughs> chapter 6, verse 4, what is the Shema? Hear, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. In the New Testament, when Jesus says, they may know you, the only true God, yeah. <laughs> and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Interesting equivocation there. What is the point that's being made? We believe the first fundamental doctrine of the Trinity is that there is one God. So the even just stopping there, and we can give other examples of this as well. But noting in Surah 5, 116, the refutation of the Trinity isn't the Trinity, but they talk about it as if it is. So if you run into a Muslim, hopefully you're engaging with them regularly, and they say, oh, so you believe in three gods. If they're devout, they will bring this up eventually. Either the Bible's corrupt, you believe in three gods, or, and this is also important, is that, oh, we affirm, we believe in Jesus too, why don't you love Muhammad? Know how to respond to these things. It's not hard. But the point we made is this, full stop, that's not what the Trinity is. Right. Yes, it is. It's what the Quran says. That's a problem for you then, right. because what does the Bible actually say? If the Quran is the observations of a sixth-century caravan robber, then I'd expect him maybe to not get certain things right. I to can understand. Least, yeah, to at least get the argument right. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have to agree with it, but at least get the argument right. And note, we can give him that much credit. He could be wrong if this is from a man. But what did Muhammad claim? That the Quran is recited from what was sent down. And this by the is way, something that 
quote that Sean has, they actually put words, he goes a step further, and claims that Jesus actually responded to this. That he will respond prophetically at the Day of Judgment. So note this point. If this is from God, then I would expect God to get these facts straight. And that is when you can go into clarifying these things. You have to know what the Trinity is in order to defend it. And you have to know what the Trinity is in order to recognize a straw man of it. Mm -hmm. But like Peter and I talked about previously in yesterday's broadcast, Iron Man in something is trying to make it more true than it actually is, that the common presentation isn't accurate, so we're going to smooth it out, so to speak. A straw man is less than reality. So in recap, what is a straw man fallacy, and how do you respond to it? Yeah, so a straw man fallacy is a misrepresentation, sometimes intentional, sometimes unintentional, but a misrepresentation of someone's actual argument, and then a refutation of the characterization that you made. So you make like a caricature or a straw man, right? You make a, uh, a false dummy version of their argument, and then you take that dummy down. That's the, that's the straw man fallacy. As Christians, and I encourage you guys, read through Acts 17 and see what, what ardent uh, strides that the Apostle Paul made to not misrepresent his opponents, right? You see that he had to do an awful lot of reading, and he's able to quote from memory some of their Greek philosophers in order to represent their point of view and their theology correctly so that he can accurately respond to it. Uh, so as Christians, you know, there's a reason why me and Sean know so much about Islam and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. It's because we've taken a lot of steps to try to properly represent our opponents, not only because we don't want to fall into being accused of making a straw man, but because if you want someone to listen to what you have to say, respect goes a long way. Right? So if you, if you want to dialogue with someone about something as important as truth and you're misrepresenting them, you're not going to get anywhere in that conversation. You may be preaching to the choir, meaning the people who already believe as you do might be like, yeah, that's awesome. But you're never going to be able to convince the person that you're talking to if you're disrespecting them by not even getting them the common courtesy of listening. Uh, same, in, in, again, in even just marital context, uh, I always give couples a exercise where I say, if you're talking and you don't understand one another, after one partner's done talking, the other partner that was listening has to repeat back what they said, and they do it until their partner is satisfied with the representation. So you keep saying, like, okay, this is, I think this is what you're saying. Let me know if, I'm, if I got this. And you let your partner respond. They could either say, yep, that's about accurate, or they could say, no, it's not accurate, and you go back to square one. You go back to the drawing board. Which is why the first lesson in rhetoric wasn't talking, it was listening. That's right. Remember that, and you'll be just fine. Absolutely. So uh, make sure that you're doing that, and then when someone does a straw man of your argument, make sure to go back to say, that was a misrepresentation, that's not what I said, clarify your point, and then you can move on to defending it but don't respond, do not respond to their bad representation of your point because you're not gonna get anywhere that way. All right, now, not to uh, contradict what we just said in regarding respect going a long way, but I think, and this is my personal opinion, sometimes there are things that are just worthy of being mocked. So we'll uh, address this question real quick from Isaiah. He went to a fellowship in past tense, fortunately, where the pastor said, no joking, the color yellow is evil, and anything associated with yellow means that you're going to hell. And people 
believe this. So why would people fall for this kind of church, this stuff, kind of stuff in church? I think, what do you think of Asians? I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Which, by the way, is not uh, racially motivated. You share that in half of your bloodline. Yeah, but uh, just to, I guess, have a little bit of fun here. Remember, folks, this this is what's the image of evil. This is what's going to send you all to hell. For those of you listening on Reach Radio, I have the color yellow, the mark of the beast. Look at it. <laughs> Look at it. It's going to send you to hell. Oh, How does he boy. do with the sun or dandelions or you know, yellow lights at stoplights? I don't know. Well, I want to hear it from him. Going back to consistency, we're mm-hmm. just having a little fun here. But going back to consistency, I'd want to hear it from him what biblical basis you would have for that, because I can't think of any. I can imagine maybe someone taking a third of a verse of Revelation 17 out of context and say, Scarlet's the color of Satan, because this is the mystery battle. Yeah, I would, I would understand red. I don't understand yellow. But I'll be that as it yeah. may. Let's maybe take this a step back and deal with the core of the issue. When people are looking at things as the object of either inspiring fear or inspiring caution or even just training an emotional revulsion with certain things, it can be well-intended. For example, uh, when it comes to certain purity groups and discussing sexual morality, there's an approach some people take in saying, well, just don't have anything to do with it. Anything in reference to your sexuality is evil and yucky and sinful and of the Satan. And then they get into the serpent seed doctrine and all this other fun stuff. The the fall of man was the involvement of sex and all these other false statements that, though well-intended to avoid another sin, is committing another sin by lying and misrepresenting scripture. Same way. We can say, uh, do this with alcohol and saying that, oh, well, Jesus couldn't have turned the water into wine in John chapter 2. That was obviously grape juice because, you know, the, the devil's liquor, that, that's the uh, seed of Satan and so forth, and grapes and all that other fun stuff, and then you get into the woods. But when it comes to the purpose of prophecy, and let us know, Isaiah, if this helps you out, and we will, of course, be praying for that fellowship, but seems like a lot of fear. seems like a lot of motivation in your walk with God to be reactionary rather than responsive. It's not pursuing Jesus. It's running from, 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 from that. Let me get the, the devil's color up there again. That, as you can see, we're, we're melting like vampires in front of a crucifix. Being sarcastic, of course. But here's the point. When we're talking about this issue, what is the purpose of actual Bible study? Is it to inspire fear, or is it to, as we read, inspire edification, exhortation, and comfort, to speak God's heart, God's word, God's voice? Love, maybe, is the fruit. These are the sort of things that we should be looking for. How, how should we be judges, brands of that? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to take this from a, a slightly different angle because there's only one real reason, if, if what you're representing, Isaiah, is, is accurate, there's only one real reason I could think why someone would do that, and that would be a more cult-like ministry. So when cult-like ministries get going, what they want to establish is they want to establish their dominance as being the one and only vessel for God's truth. So if you can go to a church and they say, hey, we're teaching the same thing as that church across the street, I haven't created or generated enough dependency on my particular ministry. I need to generate a dependency where you have to come to me 
and me alone for truth. So I will intentionally create arbitrary legalistic statements like that to show we're the only ones that really got the truth. We're the only ones that could really get you to heaven. You see, no one else talks about this evil of the color yellow, and I'll give you these articles and these justifications, and I don't know what justifications he has, but there's always something, right? Every crazy, kooky conspiracy theory that you listen to on its face, you're like, they can't possibly have any backing behind it, and then you find out that they do. Is it good backing? No, but they have some reasoning as to why they believe what they believe. So they present these things, and again, it's to entrap you, it's to make you fearful, and again, it's to make you dependent on that organization as your sole source for truth. They don't want to preach something that you can get anywhere else. So when people go, if you go to a church, I think that's one of the first things you should look for. How do they look at other churches and other ministries? If their perspective is, we're it, man. Like, it's us against the world. Everyone else is deceived. Everyone else is going to hell. This is the only church that has the, true, uh, the truth, and you're not going to make it any other way. That's a pretty good sign that you're in cult-like behavior. Uh, what you want to hear from churches is the truth is what sets you free. It's God's word that sets you free. And any church and any edifice that properly and appropriately handles the word of truth can be trusted, should be trusted, and you should go to it. So that's that's the idea there. But when you're going there, again, like Sean said, it's not about fear-mongering or about uh, causing hysteria or phobias or anything like that, which is, again, another control technique used by cults. It is simply about understanding truth. And yeah, certain truths are scary, but every fear that we see uh, presented in the Bible is alleviated in Christ. So there are instances in which people have scary encounters with, say, angels or something like that, like in Isaiah or in Daniel or Ezekiel or any time someone sees God or an angel, they, they, they freak out. But you see that God immediately comforts them, and that's what Sean was alluding to when he gave the edification, the exhortation, and the comfort. Am I building someone up in their knowledge of the truth? And yes, some of that knowledge might be scary knowledge. Am I then exhorting them to act on that truth in a way that affects their life? And once again, that exhortation might be a little scary because it might be convicting to what I am or am not doing within my personal life. But I have to finish it by having a level of comfort, that someone feels assured and safe in God, that as they move forward, they're not moving forward because, oh, if I don't do this, I'm gonna go to hell. They're moving forward because they love God and they wanna honor him in their own personal life. So when we see, for example, hellfire sermons, Obviously, there's a time and a place for that, but it's an incomplete communication of God's Word and God's heart because the gospel should be there too. Yes, this is horrible. An existence apart from God forever is not to be underestimated. Leonard Ravenhill says, sinners in the hands of an angry God is a great message, but why? Not because it creates a very vivid and biblical picture of hell, but because it reminds you the entire time, by the way, start to finish, incrementally, that you could escape this at any time and that being the worst reality of what that existence is like. So make sure that uh, this <laughs> yellow, for those of you listening, isn't what you're taking away from, or I guess avoiding, as a result of your time in God's Word. Find a fellowship, as you have obviously done, Isaiah, that doesn't uh, want to produce fear. It wants to produce godly edification, which includes a natural response to severe realities, but in the context of comfort and in the context of truth edification. So right. 
Let us know if that helps you out. Here's a question from our Facebook page. This is from Monica, who wants to know about the famous Gog and Magog invasion. Ezekiel 28, or 38 rather, and 39. Does that happen before or after the rapture? Her understanding is after? Yeah, it's anyone's guess, Monica. When it comes to our position, we would generally say after as well, and that's because of not information in the text per se. There's a passage we'll go to in a moment that kind of makes it difficult to harmonize these other things, but there are good responses to it. The reason why we would come to this conclusion is because we're taking information and other information and seeing what puzzle pieces fit together the most. Since we don't have the benefit of 2020, we don't have every puzzle piece yet, that is of course something that'll have to be verified more in time. We'll know real quick <laughs> when God judges the invasion by fire that is spearheaded by Persia, modern-day Iran, and of course, Russia and Tagalog, as well as many other Islamic nations that aren't immediately adjacent. We would note some significant names, but that's not the nature of your question. The biggest nature of the question is that the invasion will take place when Israel is in a state of security, of somewhat not just security, but pacificity, that it's in an unwalled city. Now, obviously, walls in the sense of, you know, we're going to build a wall today is built around the idea of a state of security in the ancient world, that robbers just can't come in and out at night, that there's a natural state of defense or a defensible position. You look at Israel today, they, they got some walls up. We could note the Iron Dome missile defense system. We could note the literal trench lines and tank traps and barbed wire and everything else that could characterize this. But the point being made is Israel is very much in a combat-ready state mostly because they're always in combat, but the point being made is that. When we try to harmonize that with a time before the Great Tribulation, it would be very difficult for us to see that happening today with Islam being, well, Islam, and the nations around them fundamentally in their religion believing that the end won't come until, every, until the Jews literally are being massacred left and right, that the only tree that doesn't tell Muslims that a Jew is hiding behind me, come and kill him, is this particular tree because it's the tree of the Jews and other anti-Semitic sentiment. But the point being made is this. When and if we were to see a time, maybe in the future, when Islam collapses under the weight of its own self-deception, God bless them, and I hope that that day comes sooner. But that's not likely to happen anytime soon, so I have to go with what I do know, not what I, what I don't. What we do know is that during the tribulation, the Antichrist introduction of this time will be through the establishing of a world peace system, or the confirming of it, rather. We read this in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, that at that last week, that last seven-year period of time, the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with many for seven years. In the first three and a half years, he'll be good on it. Obviously, there will be uh, interesting things happening supernaturally throughout the world. Read Revelation 6 through 11 to note the first half of the tribulation. But the point being made is this. Israel at that time will be living in a state of security and no need for there to be a concern for international wars and invasions that would fit the scenario we read of in Ezekiel 38 and 39 of this unwalled city-state because of that. So because the tribulation starts with a false peace, especially in relevance to Israel, we read prophecies in Zechariah noting that you've made a covenant with death and that that would ultimately come back to bite them during the 
great tribulation, the abomination that causes desolation. Feel free to ask more about this, Monica. I'm summarizing a lot. But the reason why we would agree with you is because of that passage. It sets up a scenario of Israel being in a state of security that we don't necessarily see as possible today. Now note, things could change. We get closer to the fulfillment of the tribulation, Islam may collapse, and Israel might be living in a state of somewhat neutrality. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> there's an invasion motivated by something other than Islam. We don't know. But the point being made is this. Much like people throughout history have looked at current events and said, yeah, it says that Israel will be back in the land, but Israel ain't back in the land. We're supposed to anticipate the coming of the Lord, and there were plenty of people who said, I guess that's just going to have to be something that happens right after the rapture, or right at the start of this peace covenant. Maybe that'll be the establishment of the peace covenant, Israel returning to their land. Time may tell. This prophecy may be fulfilled, and this is like taking a step back in history. Maybe there's a uh, position, a controversy. Are you believing the Gog and Magog vision before or after the rapture? Do you believe in the restoration of Israel before or after the rapture? We need more information than we have. However, the information that we have can be harmonized in regards to what fits the most data. Since I can't count on Islam being a constant, it wasn't always here, and hopefully it won't always be here in the future and leading into the tribulation. But that's the point. That would have to be something that changes. Israel's state is one of walled cities of security and self-imposed at that. The reason why it's going to be such a dramatic spiritual moment for Israel at this point, that they're going to know that that's God, see also Revelation 11, is because of that fact that God will intervene when they had no opportunity or excuse to come out of this alive. So that would be why we'd agree with you, Monica, but there are arguments on both sides. When it comes to what we will know for certain, it will have to be time that tells us. But if, on the other hand, we go with the data we have, that would be the passage to clue in on for the post-Gog and Magog invasion. If you want to hear uh, arguments pre, uh, we do recommend his ministry, Terry Malone of Calvary Prophecy Report. Uh, he holds the position that it will accompany shortly before the rapture of the church, and you can hear his reasons out on his channel. And uh, by the way, uh, this is not a non-negotiable issue. 100% recommend his ministry. Again, we don't agree on everything, but what we do agree on are the fundamentals. He's a fantastic ministry. But uh, anything more to note on this? No. Let us know if that helps you out, Monica. Uh, going out to our YouTube page, we got a question from Yari, who's been very patient. He asked this yesterday. Uh, he wants to know about the sign of Jonah hmm. regarding him when Jesus made the direct comparison, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will three be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Obviously, that's foreshadowing, but not a fulfillment of it. Jonah wasn't Jesus. There's a significant 800-year gap between their lives. But if, on the other hand, I were to note, did, and this is his question, did Jonah die in the heart of the great fish? There are people who read Jonah chapter 2 and have questions. Yeah. Maybe not answers, but what would be some of the possibilities? No, it is, it is a good question, and it's one that, as Sean said, there's a little bit of controversy on. I, I don't know of anyone who's, like, super dogmatic about it. I think we're just like, hey, these are the possibilities. What we do know for sure is that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Uh, some people say whale. We actually don't know what it was. It was just some sort of a big old fish. That's, that's all we know for sure. Yeah, well, it was... Uh it was seaworthy. Yeah. That, that much we know. <laughs> the seaworthy swallows him up, 
he spends three days, three nights in there. And during the time he uh, kind of writes in his head, because obviously he doesn't have pen and paper in that scenario. Yeah, but the he writes, book of Jonah was written after the fact of the events that it reports. <laughs> right? he's, he's writing a, a bit of a song while he's in there. And it's a, it's a lamentation, as you might expect. And in it, he says that he is in Sheol. Now, that's the Hebrew word for grave. And some people say, like, okay, is he saying that he actually died and God had a bit of a resurrection? That's a possibility, right? That he was resuscitated and then he was spat up on dry land. That is a possibility. Resuscitated, not resurrected. He wasn't given a new body that would never die again. He was restored to the state he was formerly in in his body. That's a difference. Exactly. So that's, that's very much a possibility. We don't know. The text doesn't explicitly tell us. But it is a possibility, and it's one that I wouldn't discount altogether. And some people would also ascribe to that because they would say it's not really possible for someone to spend that much time in the, the digestive fluids of a whale. Um, now, that's not actually true or accurate. We know that someone could spend that time. They wouldn't exactly look like a model afterwards, but they could be alive after that amount of time inside of the digestive tract of a giant fish or a whale, as well as God could have supernaturally preserved him. So it could have been that Jonah is making a hyperbolic statement that it feels as though he is in the grave. It feels he as though he is in some sort of a hellish state. Which is and appropriate given the context of Jonah 2 being a song. Exactly. And he's in pitch black darkness. He's being burned by the stomach acids of this animal. And, and he is hot. It's hot. It's and the he, body temperature of the fish. And, <laughs> and he has no idea if he's going to get out alive. That is definitely all components that would suggest maybe this is just hyperbolic statements. He didn't actually die, but he's in a state that resembled death. And, uh, you know, water throughout the Bible is used as a picture of death. People go under the water to represent the uh, death of Jesus, and they come out of the water to represent the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter makes this allusion in 1 Peter 3. So it would be fitting for Jesus to use this as an allusion to say, like, Jonah is taken, and he's taken into the depths of the sea by this great fish. He spends three days and three nights there as a picture of death, and then he is spat back out on a dry land, which represents the recitation or the, well, in Jonah's case, it would be a resuscitation, but in Jesus' case, it would be an actual resurrection. So he's saying that there's a parallel there in what happened to Jonah and what is going to happen to me. So either one, I mean, I'm like I said, I'm not married to either uh, perspective. I could see either one. I tend to lean more towards the fact that Jonah did not die. I think if he would have, it would have been explicitly stated, but who knows? Yeah, and note also the distinction between Jesus being in the heart of the earth right. and in the heart of the fish. That's right. their heart, stomach. Maybe if it was a blue whale, I don't know. But the point <laughs> being made is that's a mammal. You get the point. Yeah. When we're talking about this issue, go with what we have. And there's another follow-through in Jonah one seventeen. It says the Lord prepared a fish. What does that mean? Is this a specially uniquely created fish for this purpose? Or is it some kind of creature that we don't know of? Again, it's the same answer, Yari. When it comes to what we know about the ocean, I think uh, the last numbers I saw estimated, we've explored about maybe 5% of the ocean and are aware of maybe less than a fifth of the kinds of life that is down there, which is what makes people so nervous when they see (laughs) the ocean. It's just so much bigger than us, and the things in there are also so much bigger than us. I have a friend who has thassophobia, and I take advantage of it, but that's another topic. When we discuss these issues, though, (laughs) or thassophobia, think 
fear of things that are bigger than you. But the point being made is this. Um, in Jonah one seventeen, it just notes the fish was introduced the scenario. I think that the support that interpretation supports the flow of the topic. Whatever this was, it was brought up for this purpose to interact with Jonah specifically. Right. God was the uh, mind behind the meat, so to speak. So let us know if that helps you out. Going back to our website, here's a question from Nina, who wants to know about Mystery Babylon. Hmm. Uh, if it's actual Iraq, the United States, some people have suggested because of our former economic significance in the world. Um, a lot of people obviously have had different theories. Some say it's China, but what is it? Obviously, Nina, if we knew, we would be able to give a longer answer, and I would have already, but Mystery Babylon, I think, is emphasized. When it comes to Babel itself, <laughs> uh, they were obviously introduced in Genesis chapter 11, and that was the introduction of idolatry. The law first mentioned in Scripture means that when you have something introduced, it kind of sets the tone for every time it's also mentioned in the future in Scripture, unless specified. So if, on the other hand, I were to note Babel is mentioned for the first time in Genesis 11, idolatry takes place, mankind's rebelling against God, that is a good tone to take into Revelation. It's another example, say for instance, the first time love is mentioned in the Bible. Are you familiar with it? It's in Genesis 22 in reference to a father's love for his only son. That's uh, not too difficult to catch, if you know what I mean. doesn't mean that every time love is mentioned that it's referencing that, but it is setting a tone going forward. So Babel. Obviously, the Tower of Babel was built in the Fertile Crescent that we know today. We don't know how much of an expanded territory it was. There's been some pretty impressive ruins found that may date to that time period. Others associate it with Sargon of Akkad, but the point being made is this. Uh, Sargon II and the first, you guys are hopefully familiar. But the point being made is this. When we're talking about Mystery Babylon, what's described for us in Revelation 17 and 18 is Again, two chapters of a very significant and difficult section of Scripture, but a lot of references to the Old Testament are made, and those are especially significant because that's usually where the explanations come from. When explanations are provided, when it says the seven uh, horns or the seven hills on which the woman to the city sits, and this economic power, of course, that's going to be behind it, it will be upheld by the beast, the Antichrist, who is already explained in Revelation 13, and many of these other features that are assumed going forward. But obviously it doesn't mean that there's going to be some lady standing on the shoulders of the Antichrist like a perpetual game of chicken for the first three and a half years. Then he's going to finally get tired, you know, his shoulders are sore, so he's going to throw her off and then all of his political advisors are going to cannibalize her. No, this is obviously a symbolic picture because it notes that it'll show you this sign. So when it comes to what we know about Babylon, it obviously follows the themes Babel has had throughout Scripture, that is, rebellion against God. It's obviously, and this is what we can know from the text, more of an economic system than a geographical one. There are geographical details, we'll mind that, but in Revelation chapter 18, the people who are grieving its destruction are those who are merchants, who are getting wealthy through trade, and they're the ones who are in total despair of this. Now, people look at the significance of those in, who are singled out, by the way, in Revelation 18, as those who trade through ships, 
and they're asking, well, there's not a lot of boat traffic through <laughs> Iraq. You've been in Afghanistan near there. Is there a lot of water? No. So obviously there have been some people who say, oh, well, this is in reference to the Twin Towers until 2001. There's been people who said, oh, well, China has a lot of seaports. Maybe that's it now that we see them economically on the rise. Saddam Hussein, uh, people were getting very prophetically curious when he made an insistence on pouring all of his resources into rebuilding Babel. But, uh, of course, the endeavor, the endeavor excuse me, failed, and the uh, state of Babylon is still what we see today. So the point being made is this. In a nation that presently is longing for the potential possibility of having a holiday in, not an economic powerhouse, but we're not in the Great Tribulation yet. For people who would associate it with any nation, those opinions have come and gone because of immediate factors. And just like with the previous issue of Gog and Magog, we need more information than we have. But what we are told is that this is what the Antichrist will be using then, not now, not back then, but then in the future. So wait for more information and be content with the information we actually have, because what was the whole crux of being introduced to Mystery Babylon? That in Revelation 16, it experiences the full wrath of God and is removed from this earth forever. I can uh, see to a point the interesting nature of that, and maybe in the next uh, two weeks on our Revelation studies, we'll be going into more detail. Maybe you can join us for that, Nina, but let us know if that's clear. you have anything more to add? No. All right. Uh, going out to our website, again, a lot of uh, little comments. We want to make sure it's not a commentary question. We want to make sure that that is clear. But um, let's see. Going to our email, this is an interesting question that was sent along to us from David. Uh, he has individuals in his life that have an emphasis on using their preferred pronouns, and he's kind of at a loss. Uh, is it compromising to truth to play along with this game, or is it the kind of gentleness and respect that should be expected of saints to kind of lower themselves down? If I don't talk to them this way, it'll cut them off from the gospel, so I'll make these compromises because it's not a fundamental issue. Uh, how should we go about this approach? I can tell you, uh, David, in my own experience, there are people in my life who are part of this transgender movement, and they I've talked to them. I've just said, look, because I knew you for a long time as this name, and I've addressed you as this way, it, it would be uncomfortable for me to address you otherwise, so could I still call you that? And they knew me well enough to know I didn't hate them, that I wasn't being personal or vitriolic or mocking them if I were to refer to them as the gender I was used to referring to them as, and I got their permission, and that's sometimes the best case scenario. But Peter, in your experience, what would be the most biblically consistent approach in the uh, three and a half minutes we have left? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, and it's one that would kind of go up to each person's conscience. I think the one thing that you can't compromise on is the truth in and of itself. So in other words, if someone comes to you and they say, hey, I, um, you know, this is my now gender, and these are the profounds that, pronouns that I feel like most uh, aptly represent my new gender, and I want you to call me that, what you can't do is agree wholeheartedly with what they're saying. So you can't say like, oh, it's great. That's awesome that you're transitioning. I will totally call you by your preferred pronouns. You can't do that. You can make your voice heard. You can say, hey, this is sit down with them, have a nice and honest and open conversation with them, explain to them 
what your thoughts are about it, what you believe is happening to them, and how you view it. Now, that being said, once that conversation occurs, this is where your conscience comes in. And I think it really depends on... Number one, what kind of relationship do you have with this person? If it's just kind of like a coworker or a friend, I know I'm like someone that you don't really know at all. Uh, I don't even think it would get that far. And I don't personally go out of my way to offend people. So, you know, like if someone is saying uh, transitioning and clearly and obviously transitioning to be a woman, but they're a man, I'm not going to go out of my way to be like, hey, dude, you know, hey, bro, you know, like, I don't usually use pronouns like that too often. So I'm not going to go out of my way to offend somebody. But I'm not, again, I'm not also going to compromise truth. If I have enough uh, of an ear with that person, I'm going to talk to them about it and tell them what I think. In the same way, when you have a friend or a family member who's going into that particular ideology, it is a good thing to have that open conversation. And like Sean said, I think that's a good way to do it. Just say, hey, this is how I feel comfortable calling you. What do you think about that? And that will really uh, show you where this person's at. Because many people who fall into this ideology, they have been given this perspective that the reason why people in that ideology are suicidal is because they don't have enough affirmation and support. And so most of them are genuinely instructed by counselors to cut everyone out of their life that doesn't actively affirm their new identity and support them in it. Because of that, if you just say, I'm not comfortable doing this, or you give them your perspective on what they're doing, they might cut you out of the, their life just for doing that. So you do have to have some courage to be willing to take that. But if they allow you to stay in their life, like I said, I'm not going to go out of my way to offend somebody. If I had a close friend and I asked them that, I said, hey, is it okay if I just call you by your original name that I know you by? If they refuse that, they say, no, I really would feel comfortable with you doing that. I, I love you. I care about you. I don't want to lose you as a friend. I would really like you to do that. That's a conscience issue. My own personal conscience, I probably would do what they said, right? I would be like, okay, I could call you by the name that you want. We get to pick our own names. If someone came up to me and said, hey, I'm going to be Captain Explosions, I'd be like, all right, you know, like that's a, I think that's ridiculous, but all right, I'll call you that name if you want me to. Like I said, I'm, that's, that's the main thing. We can't compromise on truth, but we also can bend to people in certain ways. Yeah, appropriate to the perspective and the individual. If they're in a state where this is something unstable for them, you can pray for them, but you don't do them any favors by entertaining something harmful. If, on the other hand, you're talking to someone that, again, in my case, I was fortunate that they knew me well enough not to attribute motive like that, then you can have a much better time of it. And again, it will become the most natural thing. But that is what to keep in mind, David. And thank you for the question again just develop as positive relationships with good people as you can and if these things are cut off or if these compromises ultimately end up being consequential in that regard just keep praying god will give you favor in the eyes of men god bless you and we'll see you all again tomorrow thank you for listening and we'll look forward to opportunities more in the future and renee will be spending plenty of time in your question tomorrow god bless you you've been listening to a reason for hope Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.